What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and today we've got a special edition of our Hustle series. As a reminder, these are episodes where I sit down and interview folks who are doing cool shit in the broader foreign affairs industry, figure out how they navigated their careers, etc. And um, today is going to be a, actually the first of a two-parter with Dan Nexon. If you haven't heard, you better ask somebody professor at Georgetown University, big scholar of empires, international relations theory. He's been a champion of uh, relationalism, uh, a particular way of thinking in terms of networks in international relations. And he's also kind of the godfather of progressive foreign policy thinking today. He wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs uh, in 2017 or 2018 called Toward a Neo-Progressive Foreign Policy. And it's been very influential in the debate about what progressive foreign policy ought to be. And he sees himself as championing a brand that is neither liberal internationalist, which is like the default since the end of the Cold War, but neither is it anti-imperialist or anti-hegemonic. So he he's, he's critical of U.S. power and the U.S. military, but he isn't isolationist. He doesn't think that like retrenching from U.S. commitments is going to be the solution to our problems by any means. He actually sees a need for like a vigorous internationalism, um, just one not centered on the military. So we're going to talk about that more in part two of the Hustle episode. So I'll be releasing that uh, in a few days. Part one today is more about his his actual career path. So he's done all kinds of cool shit and he's extremely well known in international relations. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a wonkery or like if you're not familiar with the academic marketplace, there, there are some things that might help you um, listen to this episode today. One being that when he refers to the University of Minnesota or the Minnesota School, he's talking about a concentration of scholars there in international relations who focus on constructivism and critical theory. Another is the somebody named Mustafa Emirbayer, who is a sociologist who in, I think, like 1997, wrote this uh, seminal journal article 
called uh, a manifesto for relational sociology. And that became a key, like a touchstone in Nixon's early work on relational approaches to international relations. Um, he co-authored a bunch of important work in the, he wrote a bunch of uh, important work in this area, but he co-authored a key important piece in IR theory developments from the last 25 years called Relations Before States. We talk a bit about that. And so today we, we just talk about like navigating the academic, getting into academic life and then figuring out how to make your way in academic life. It's amazing for how big of a name this guy is, how sort of contingent his success was, which is something we also pick up on in the conversation. Oh, one other thing that he refers to a few times is this International Affairs Fellowship with the Council on Foreign Relations. So I used this uh, fellowship to get into the think tank world. It was my ticket out of government. He used it, and most people use this uh, International Affairs Fellowship as a scholar, enter into government for 12 months. So it's this 12-month basically funded immersion experience, um, like Freaky Friday almost. And like, so for me, I used it to reverse, I reverse engineered it to get out of government. He used it the normal way to go spend a year in government and see how the sausage is made. We have a little bit of convergence on that, which we also get into. And that's basically it, right? International Affairs Fellowship, Mustafa Emmerbayer, University of Minnesota School, Oh, and then and then when he talks about the academic job market, the interview process for professor jobs involve they're called job talks and they involve normally a research presentation of some kind. But if you're if you're going to like a liberal arts college or a, a school that focuses primarily on teaching, so a teaching university, you end up obviously doing a teaching presentation. And so when he talks about job talks and teaching presentations, that's teaching demos. That's what that's what he's talking about. Um, these are the ways that you do interviews in academia to land jobs. And so that's basically it. You've officially got your tutorial so that you can uh, follow along fruitfully in what is an engaging conversation with Dan Nexon. So engaging that I'm breaking it into two parts. So without further ado, here's my convo with Dan about being an IR scholar. I think you probably know this. I'm a big fanboy. I've I tried to model. I come from like a very different place from you, I think, uh, in terms of like my life and advantages and stuff so my orientation is a little bit different but like the way you process the world and then interact with it in like multiple fields multiple domains and like the whole relational approach to ir all of this stuff like very much uh vibes with me and a lot of people that i meet who are like in this the the gen z and millennial world of like pre-academia or like early career you are the new bob jervis for a lot of people or like the new scott sagan or charles tilly that is a terrifying thought um <laughs> i'm basically a dilettante uh and you know everything i i've done has largely because uh, i can do it so, you know, blogging came along. Hey, this is easy. I can blog. Uh, Twitter came along. It was yeah. a, largely a follow-up to blogging as far as I was concerned. Uh, I think it's just that I'm, you know, I think fundamentally the deal is that I'm old. And as you get older, you accumulate various kinds of personalities and presences in different settings, I guess. I don't know. Well, you haven't been afraid to go into the, like, I, there's a, I think there's a traditional mindset of like, especially an older academic where your time should be focused on producing peer reviewed research in journals. And then everything else is 
uh, secondary or not like you're you're using your time wrong if you're pre-tenure and you're not writing a journal article but like you did all kinds of shit. I mean, like you were a very early adopter of blogging and stuff, right? I mean, I was sort of in, I think, what I would call the second wave, which is you had the pioneers, people like Daniel Dresner and Jacob Levy in political science. Mm. Uh, and I came along after they'd already established themselves uh, and kind of followed in their footsteps. Uh, but I think what was distinctive about what I did with the Duck of Minerva was that it was the first really kind of large Borg-like expanding uh, group academic blog for international relations. So we had for a long time a, a fairly unique niche. Now, of course, blogging is passe. Twitter's passe. Passe. We're all kind of we're all behind the times constantly, right? Postmodern. Um, yeah. But I think I mean the fundamental thing for me is that a I have no filter. Um, uh, and right. So and that's you know I, I have to tell my students that if they can't deal with swearing, they're just going to get out have to get out of the class. Because right. there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Uh, so I actually am one of those old troglodytes when it comes to the idea that you should be doing lots of academic work and that your tenure or prospects should rise or fall on academic work. Where I differ is mm -hmm. I don't think that what you do in your other time is anybody's business. And if you can fucking be on Twitter or run a blog or go on television or write for foreign policy uh, or write poetry or fiction uh, and still do what you need to do on the academic side, then it's nobody's business, right? That's kind of so. As long idea. as you're hitting the standards and the academic by academic criteria, everything else is fair game. Exactly. I mean, is somebody going to get? Is, is a colleague? I mean, the the idea here, right? Would is is a colleague going to get angry at you for not doing enough academic work because you read fiction in your spare time, right? I mean, to me, it's just kind of a ridiculous thing. One of the nice things about at least the research outputs in uh, academia is that a lot of it's basically piecework. So how you get there is less important than than what you actually produce. Mm. Uh, and so my view is that that's the way we ought to be, right? So if I am going to work from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. on my academic work and then do something else from a different amount of time, you know, that's just, it's not your business, right? It's nobody's business. Uh, and it's not a basis to criticize anyone for the things that they like to do. The fact that I think the reason why people get confused is that a lot of the stuff you're talking about is academia adjacent yeah, or it's scholarship adjacent. So they, so some people, some older folks, I don't think this is the case really much anymore, but have this idea that they have a right to police that and they just don't have that right. Yeah, it does. Like, especially when it's academic adjacent, a lot of this side, side interest stuff kind of amplifies the research though. Like I was talking to Dresner once at a conference and he said something like he has, he's published some research that like should get way less attention and way fewer sites than it did. But because he had a uh, like platform and voice uh, of a certain level, it, it amplified what he was actually putting out there into the world. Um, and I think that was a little bit self-deprecating, but there was like a larger point there of like, by doing this academic adjacent stuff, it actually, there's a it, not self-promotion, but like there's an element of like, this is how the world will discover your stuff. Whereas if you only did the traditional journal article stuff and kept your head down in your office all the time, nobody would discover you. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that's right. It's funny. So we went through, let's, blogging is a good example, even though it's passe now. So we went through a phase when there was a lot of fear that people would be punished for blogging. Uh, and 
There was speculation, though I don't think it was correct, that, say, Daniel Dresser did not get tenure at Chicago because of his blogging activities. Um, Mm. He was screwed out of tenure for other reasons. But the... um, And so for a while, there was this kind of, what are you doing with your time? This is all ephemeral. And then at some point, people started to figure out that having some visibility brought more attention to your work. It was a good way to publicize your work, both for people outside of the field, but also within the field. We have to remember that international relations is a really big field of study, uh, and there's a lot of noise, and there are a quadrillion journals now. And so cutting through that uh, is requires the same sorts of things to some degree as cutting through the noise of, say, public-facing work. So it's all kind of the same thing, right? So Mm. people then figured out, oh, wait, this is actually like a good way to publicize your work and for people to know what you're up to and to know who you are. And so it then became obligatory that you were supposed to have, you know, a web page with a blog on it, or you got these sort of ridiculous notions that if you just kind of blogged it, people would come. Yeah. Of course, by the time we got to that stage, Blogging was not unaffiliated blogging, that is independent blogging, uh, as opposed to blogging at an institutional site or having essentially a column, a blog in the form of a column at some place like the Washington Post. That was all going the way of, you know, that was just all slipping out of out yeah. of visibility at that point. Um, so it's the you know I- irony, but it's the expected thing. Academia is always like three steps behind. Speaking of academia, natural segue to. <laughs> uh, your your beginnings, basic stuff. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? And then how did you end up g- getting interested in uh, poli sci and international relations? So I am super boring here because I have the kind of trajectory that looks like every other kind of privileged academic. Uh, but <laughs> I'll start from the beginning. So I was born in California. My father was actually, at that point, he was a professor of political science at Scripps College. Son of a professor. College. Yeah, he'd gotten his PhD in American politics at the University of Chicago. He was a very early statistician in the field, mm. so his dissertation was punch card based statistical analysis of voting behavior. Um, and he'd gone on to teach at this small liberal arts college in the you know in the in I was so I was born in Pomona. Uh, I don't actually remember whether he was denied tenure or he left, but uh, that job didn't work out. So we moved around for a bit, and my father wound up at the Russell Sage Foundation in New York, uh, doing research on what we would now call American political development, but was not called that hmm. then. In other words, sort of historical institutional development of the United States. So he's really interested in the Civil War and things like that. Wow. Uh, there was a change of. Uh, administration at Russell Sa- at the Russell Sage Foundation, and that kind of went away. So he took a job uh, in the government uh, at uh, the Office of Management and Budget, overseeing the Medicare and the Medicaid budgets. You can imagine what this means in the late seventies that a single person was yeah. overseeing <laughs> Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, so we moved to D.C., uh, and that was when I was maybe like three or four, right? So maybe five. So th- I basically grew up, you know. I lived in California. I lived in Cincinnati. I don't remember yeah. any of that stuff, right? So I, I grew up in the in the northern Virginia suburbs of D.C. Uh, my father worked at OMB, so he started in the Carter administration. He was not a political appointee. He was a civil servant. Uh, and then he went into the uh, – and my mother at that point was being a staying-at-home mom. She would eventually go back into teaching, which is what she did. She, was an, she became an English and Latin teacher again. So my father uh, was working at – OMB under Carter. Uh, and then my dad's pretty lefty. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and Reagan comes in, but he sticks around for a while while Stockman is the um, is running OMB because it's sort of interesting. Uh, I think he once described it as getting tiresome because they were being asked to make budgets that couldn't possibly work. So uh, he eventually then uh, he I guess he started looking for a job and he got a job with Ted Kennedy as his chief of health, health policy staff. Wow. Um, he actually has a book that he did with Nick Littlefield, which is very long and very detailed, but very good, uh, called The Lion of the Senate, which is about uh, how Kennedy rallied the Democrats after the 1994 election and not just, you know, sort of their argument is that Kennedy basically saved the legislative side, that everybody was completely demoralized and things were collapsing, but mm-hmm. that he also then how he was able to get um, progressive healthcare legislation passed even in a very Republican Congress and with a president who was on the more conservative side of the Democratic Party. So that's what I, so I I then went to, I boffed around a little bit between private and public schools. I wound up going to high school at Georgetown Day School, which is a kind of lefty, now fairly elite um, private high school in DC. Um, It's not Georgetown Prep. Oh, Georgetown Day. Yeah. So we're co-educational, heavily Jewish, uh, mostly kids of People like my dad or lobbyists or people who worked at the, you know, lawyers who worked in public interest law or were law professors, that sort of thing. White collar, upper middle. Yeah, and it wasn't so expensive then that that was impossible. Now the school, my daughter goes there now and it's just hugely expensive. Um, so Hmm. um, So the main thing I did in high school was I was a policy debater. And that really, by the time I was a junior and senior, ate up my entire life. I was constantly traveling on the weekends. I was debating. I was debating at a fairly high level. Uh, my debate partner went on in high school, who also I debated with briefly in college, went on to be in the finals of the national debate tournament, called championships twice. So oh, it was shit. a kind of good. It was a it was a good time. Um, and that also meant that I was reading a lot. One of the nice things about policy debate for anybody who's done it is you're reading a lot of college level material. So I was reading a lot of things we would now think of as IR theory, international security, security studies, uh, journals like that when Mm -hmm. I was in high school. Uh, So I did a very predictable trajectory. I I did well in school. I had good test scores. I got into Harvard. Uh, I was probably helped by the fact that my father had gone there, my uncle had gone there, my grandfather had gone there. Um, So I was Mm -hmm. a legacy and had all those advantages. Um, But the interesting thing, I guess, was that when I went to Harvard, I hated it. And uh, after the first year, I kind of imploded as a student. So my college... Why did you, what did you hate about it? So I had gone to a small uh, kind of the equivalent of a liberal arts high school, right? So small, 100 people in my class, uh, called our okay. teachers by the first name. I got to Harvard. It's, it, from my perspective, I mean, it's nothing like Michigan, right? But it's, it was very large, very impersonal. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, my body wants to sleep during the day and stay awake at night, which when you don't have any structure (laughs) isn't great for say making it to class. Um, So, and you know, it was like, it was, you know, some of your professors were accessible, but very few of them were. Um, Sometimes you had to schedule appointments weeks in advance. I just wasn't good at balancing those kinds of commitments. So I did pretty poorly in college. The one redeeming uh, feature of going to Harvard from my perspective was I did meet my wife. Um, So, 
that was a good outcome. That's a plus. But yeah. if if that weren't in play and I could do it all over again, I would go somewhere else. And this is something I I tell my daughter all the time: is it's not really if you have if you're privileged like we are and you have reasonable amounts of money and you know your college prep, it's not about going to the school that you think is going to give you the most prestige. It's about going to the school that is best suited for you as a student, right? A place where you're going to learn and enjoy learning. Um, and I wish more people would think that way. But we're in an environment yeah. that's very much a pressure cooker, and kids are under a lot of, uh, a lot of um, uh, pressure from their parents and peers to do really well and get into really good schools. Yeah. So basically, uh, towards the end of being in college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. What I'd always wanted to be was a lawyer, and that's also a very natural trajectory for policy debaters. Mm. But my grades weren't very good, <laughs> which... Uh, was a pretty big limiting factor. Um, my girlfriend at the time, who ironically went to law school, um, was really interested in academia. And I kind of, that some of that infectiousness caught up, uh, sort of rubbed off on me. In particular, in my junior year, uh, I took courses in a couple of areas that got me interested again. So I, I, I took some women's studies courses. So I was doing a lot of feminist theory, which I found really interesting. Hmm. Uh, and I was taking courses from people like Ian Johnston and Stephen Rosen, uh, and they got me interested in kind of IR again, right? They took me back to this sort of core interest I had. So when my senior year rolled around, I just kind of applied to grad schools. And it was pretty haphazard. I just applied to places with names or where some professors had suggested. And the only place I got in, into was Columbia. Uh, and I only got into Columbia kind of by the skin of my teeth because my grades weren't that good. Uh, but they were letting in a ton of people, a lot of unfunded people at the time. Uh, and so they could take risks. Uh, so hmm. I got into Columbia. And then I went to grad school. Uh, like, I... I, I Spent the first year wondering what the heck I was doing. The rest is kind of the standard thing. I went through too many years of grad school. Uh, I had a lot of trouble figuring out exactly how I was going to make the dissertation work. Uh, I got distracted with a lot of different things. I Some of them were helpful. I was writing academic articles and you know, spending a lot of time on the conference circuit. One of the things about being at Columbia in the 90s uh, is that it was such a big program that we actually developed intellectual subcultures within the program. So I was hanging out with people like Patrick Jackson, Stacey Goddard, Ron Krebs, uh, above me, oh, uh, wow. Alex Cooley, um, uh, Mark Blythe, uh, just a lot of people. Um, They're all A-listers now, yeah. Yeah, I guess a lot of them. Some of them aren't in academia anymore, and they were some of the brightest people. But this is one of the things about academia. It's not about being smart. It's about being lucky and having the right kind of temperament. Uh, so... Uh, so a couple of things kind of yanked me back in. So we had a we had sort of nice intellectual subculture going, and I started going to conferences fairly early. And uh, some grad students and people who were young professors from other programs who were sort of on the funkier side took a lot of interest in me, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of helped me through some rough patches with you know Columbia not necessarily fitting what I was doing. So people like Yuta Weldis, who's now at Bristol, and Mark Laffey, yeah. who is. Uh, now at SOAS. Uh, actually, a bunch of Minnesota people. So uh, I'm, I kind of get to call myself an honorary honorary member of the Minnesota school. Hmm. Um, Bud Duvall was very kind to me when I was uh, I was a young uh, youngish grad student. Uh, and then uh, Charles Tilley came to uh, Columbia, and uh, I started taking some courses with him and hanging out at the Contentious Politics Pro Seminar. Uh, and that really kind of, I think, the, the combination of all of that uh, the intellectual subculture, which for me was very much focused on Patrick Jackson and I spending a lot of time shooting the shit, um, 
going to the remainder bookstore and buying random crap off the remainder books, uh, random crap in terms of academic books yeah. and reading those and kind of arguing about them and talking about them. That's sort of built up for me a kind of a, a enough kind of sustained interest and enough of a kind of path in academia to push on. Uh, but, you know, again, it's another story of kind of getting by it by the skin of your teeth. I had, uh, well, the first year I was really on the market. So I was out at Stanford at uh, CSAC on a pre-doctoral fellowship, which I had gotten in part because, you know, I had some good recommendations, but, you know, it's all kind of networky. And Lynn Eden, who was running the fellows program, was one of Chuck's former students. And Chuck wrote me a pretty strong letter. And I think that helped. Uh, Chuck Tilly. So, Chuck Tilly, okay. yeah, sorry. Um, and... So uh, I get to the end of the of, of the pre-doc. I have no other fellowships. I haven't gotten anything. Um, I've interviewed at Georgetown for security studies position where the search imploded and at Minnesota where I really bombed. It was the first job talk and I really didn't know what I was doing. Mm. Uh, and so I hadn't gotten that offer. Juan Krebs got that offer instead of me. And I had nothing. I had an offer to do a visiting stint out in... Uh, out at Lewis and Clark, uh, but that would have required like uprooting everybody. We had a house in the New York City suburbs. My my wife had been working in tech, although at that point she was unemployed because of the dot com bust. So, it, so we weren't really sure what we were going to do. And we are driving in the car somewhere, and I got a call on my cell phone from John Eikenberry who said, you know, a bunch of us really liked you when you interviewed for the security studies position. We've got an opening visiting professor position. Uh, you know, if you'd like to do that, you'd be a really good candidate for it. And that will be converted into a tenure track position. So, you Whoa. know, there's a good chance that, you know, if you do well there, you, you'll get hired. That's how you ended up at George. This is when Eikenberry's at Georgetown. Yeah. And, and actually okay. what had happened is really sad. The, the person who had been in my position, Joe Lepgold, had died in a hotel fire in Paris. Uh, with his wife and kid. So I, I take this visiting position. My and I have a long conversation and basically, you know, we own a we own a house in the suburbs, a townhouse, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to move and buy. Maya's gonna have to start a career down here. So basically we made a decision that if I couldn't get a job that would at least allow us to stay in the general vicinity or be as good, you know, we bought a house basically when we moved down yeah. here and was that I was going to leave academia. So I would have got, tried to get a job in a think tank or tried to go to the Hill or tried to get a job in government. So um, the next year comes up and I'm on the market again. I have three interviews, one of which I bombed so badly that after I'm done with the mock uh, teaching, uh, you know, it's a, for, it's a liberal arts college and it's, it's Franklin and Marshall and it's a mock teaching uh you know, so instead of giving a job talk, I'm giving a teaching talk, right? Yeah. And I know it's gone so badly that I have to then spend the rest of the day where I know I'm not getting this job. Everybody around me knows I'm not getting this job. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that kind of sucked. Um, and I interviewed at Lehigh, and I don't know whether I would have gotten an offer at the end of the day, um, but uh, the, the Georgetown offer did come through. Uh, and so... I then took a job here. And that was nice because Georgetown's a great school. It's in a big city. Yeah. My parents are here. I grew up here. So it, I could have done a lot worse, but this is really like my whole story here is, a, you know, is just sort of barely squeezing through. I barely squeezed through into a grad school. I barely squeezed through into kind of finding a way to fund that by getting uh, by teaching Western philosophy at Columbia. I barely squeezed through into a dissertation topic into kind of being able to put together a committee. <laughs> barely squeezed through 
finishing my dissertation. Jesus. I barely squeezed through this in, uh, to Georgetown. So I have a, if you I don't know if you ever saw this stuff, but I used to write when I wrote about these kinds of things at the Duck of Minerva. I used to write a lot about how kind of how contingent all this is and how much luck is involved and how many yeah. people who are just as good or better than you are uh, don't make an academia for reasons that have nothing to do with their skill set, right? And yeah. so I have a, I think I have a pretty profound appreciation of that My uh, God. because because of the story, right? So yeah, I, I you look so just like ex outward appearances, you seem to be like the most fait accompli success ever and like that's so much more contingent like you said that's uh that's shocking uh, <laughs> um also so for people who don't know uh dan is famous for bringing kind of relational sociology into ir like by no means the only one but like you and patrick jackson did this kind of like seminal piece called relations before states and it was published in uh, international studies quarterly which no, is Actually, in the One European the... Journal of International Relations, so it was in. Oh, uh, was it? Nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. So, so what? How, that's like way before you are finished with your PhD, right? Yeah. Or so. So where did that where did that idea come from? Because that was incredibly novel, like foundationally novel. So I actually I have to admit I I don't I look back on that piece and I wish we'd done it differently. <laughs> But um, what? <laughs> but um, oh, there's some real. I mean, there's the point where we start talking about like uh, uh, process, the process reduction fallacy, and we use some really hokey examples. But anyway, the fundamental thing is that what had happened was that um, the 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 first year I was at uh, I was at Columbia, I was taking the intro to IR seminar, which wasn't even a seminar; it was actually a lecture class uh, because there were so many IR people there, uh, and uh, I was actually really pissed off about the final grade I got in the class and the way that a particular essay had been graded. <laughs> so I was talking about this with, with Cheryl Strassheim, who was a second year who had been in taking the course as well. She was a comparative uh, major. Uh, and she says, oh, you know, you really ought to, you really get along with this guy, Patrick Jackson. Uh, and uh, then Patrick and I wound up in Ira Katznelson's seminar on the state, uh, and the first day we're reading Watkins, this won't have much meaning to you, but but uh, but Watkins' essay on the state in political science, which is from the 30s, and it's basically the taking the state out essay. It's the one that says we shouldn't hmm. be studying the state as anything specifically unique. We should be studying associations of which the state is only one. Um, and so, and I'm talking about Hegel or something, and so Patrick comes up to me afterwards, and we start talking, and since that, from then on, we kind of hung out. Uh, there was a kind of, I, I smoked at the time, there was kind of this outside rotunda within the International Affairs Building, where you could go out, it was sort of the informal smoking section, and we'd just like stand out there and talk for, for a really long time about kind of how we thought the world was put together. Remember, this is the 90s, so constructivism is just kind of taking off. Yeah. You're allowed to read social theory, and... You can even publish writing stuff on social theory. Uh, and it actually bred a lot of, I think, kind of bad social theorizing because people would read one social theorist who had something to say, and then they'd write an article around that social theorist, and they'd get it published. Yeah. But um, so we were trying to work through all these ideas. He was coming at this from much more kind of uh, – he'd, he'd been a political science major, but he'd done a lot of math, uh, and he was really into post-structural and critical and uh, in literary theory. I was coming at this sort of – through political theory and feminist theory and kind of what I, whatever we were reading at the time. So we were sort of trying to come up with this way of thinking about all these things that we were 
that we thought, you know, kind of trying to work out how is international politics together? What exactly is the status of the state, right? If we decenter the state, what does that mean? How do we decenter the state but still take the state seriously? All mm-hmm. these kinds of issues. And at some point, somebody put um, a preprint public version of Mustafa Emmerberg's relations, his manifesto for relational sociology in our hands. Yeah. And we were like, oh, wait, this provides a way of kind of bringing all this stuff together. So um, we actually went and talked to Mustafa. Mustafa he, Mustafa, he was down at the New School at the time, right? Yeah. Kind of interviewed him. Uh, and we started to to build a paper around that. I'd, we'd done some earlier work that sort of came together. I'd done a, a paper where I'd sort of suggested that we could take notions of space in, say, like Lefebvre, for Lefebvre, like certain kinds of Marxist notions of space yeah. and notions of networks and kind of mush them together. Uh, and Patrick, again, had been doing more kind of this uh, linguistic turn, discursive production of reality stuff. So the relational, uh, so the Manifesto for Relational Sociology allowed us to kind of put that, give a common, common grounding for what we were doing. So we went and presented that at the ISA in Minnesota in 1998. Uh, and Bob Denmark had known Patrick through ISA Northeast, which is a regional uh, which is a regional conference of the big International Studies Association. And he was doing the program that year, and he put us on a panel with some real luminaries. I mean, I think Rod Hall was on that panel. Alex Went was either on the panel. I don't remember, but it was, like, full of people who were, like, big and important um, and were gods to us. And so we had a really nice kind of showing. And afterwards, a bunch of people came up to us to talk to us about what we were doing, had suggestions. Fritz, uh, I'm sorry, not Fritz Kretokville. Uh, but um, Yosef Lapid uh, said you should go read this guy, Nicholas Rescher, who's a process metaphysician. So people just kind of were interested in what we're doing, and they told us stuff we should be reading, and they gave us feedback. And eventually we you know, typed up that piece, we printed it out, and we sent it off via a global mail uh, to, uh, to Sweden uh, for the EJR. Wow. And we got you know, pretty, pretty generous reviews given what shape the original piece was in, and we were able to, to get that published and accepted. So yeah, that's kind of how it happened. That's amazing. So this did, uh, and this was, was this your first publication as an academic? Mm-hmm. How important was this piece when you were coming out of your PhD, like looking at academic jobs? So I think at the time that I was on the market, it was the biggest publication that I had. Um, it was the, you know, EJR, nobody was quite sure what to do with it because it was a relatively new journal, but it was a lot of important people were publishing it and it hmm, was yeah. trying to configure itself as the epicenter of kind of American, European IR comes together and argues about things. Yeah. So I think it helped. I mean, obviously it wasn't a blockbuster thing like publishing an IO or IS uh, and so I didn't have a ton of interviews, but I think that having that publication on there definitely probably is, I don't know if I would have gotten a job without that publication because even then, I mean, now you need like three publications going out. Yeah. It's just insane. The publication arms race is out of control. But at the time, the expectation was you, you know, you could still kind of get a job with no publications, but the expectations were increasingly that you, you sort of prove that you can get a, that you can independently get things out. That wasn't just a word of your advisors or whatever. Yeah. So, okay. So you're plugging away at Georgetown. Um, at some point, I guess you get you get tenure. When when do you end up in the Pentagon? So like th- one of the first times you popped on my radar, I was like, I happen to be a PhD student, but you like I had heard that you joined the Obama administration briefly, and I was working at the Pentagon too. Uh, like what 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 happened there? Uh, it was very contingent. So uh, Colin Call uh, is somebody I've yes, known. Yes, I worked way, for Colin. Right. So I've known Colin since um, 
since high school because uh, he was a what? good policy debater. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I first really hung out with him. I was a senior at the Michigan debate camp and he was a uh, rising freshman at Michigan. Um, For people who don't know, Colin Call was Biden's national security advisor in, under mm-hmm. Obama. Right. So Colin was obviously always brilliant and he was a really terrific debater. He, he kicked my, my ass my, my first year of college. Uh, Steve, uh, my, my, my partner and I were pleased that it took like 35 minutes to make the decision. That was a real moral victory for us. Uh, <laughs> but um, but, it, but we were pretty comprehensively crushed. Uh, I think Colin may have won the NDT in his sophomore year. I don't know. I mean, he was just really terrific. Um, so Colin uh, had been at Minnesota uh, and he wanted to, and he'd done international affairs fellowship and he wanted to move to DC. So we hired him at Georgetown. In fact, there was a period when we thought we were going to run the, we were, we, we, if we'd had, we had, so we'd hired a bunch of people who were all kind of roughly contemporaneous in, in, college in high school and college debate. So Abraham Newman, who was my best friend in, in high school debate. Hmm. Um, uh, Colin, we, we hired Colin that year. We almost hired Mike Horowitz. We, uh, he, he went elsewhere, but we could yeah. have kind of run the, the trifecta as it were, or the wow. quadrat, quadrifecta. I don't know, whatever. But uh, so, um, so Colin had recommended that I do this because the International Affairs Fellowship, which is this thing offered by the Council on Foreign Relations that places not just academics, but kind of but a large percentage of their people are academics, places people in kind of uh, other things. So some yeah. people who are in government might go into think tanks for a year. Uh, a lot of academics use this to go into government and learn something about what they study. So yeah. Colin suggested I do this um, and I applied and you know I got it, which was neat. Um, and I had a choice of working for Colin, uh, so I would have worked a lot. I almost came close to working alongside you uh, or uh, working in the uh, Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia division. And I thought it would be too weird working for Colin. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, I went to RUE where actually the, the DASD at the time, Celeste Wallander, was somebody that um, I had had a couple courses with in college. So. Also an academic, yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually did not distinguish myself in that position uh, for a whole variety of reasons, but I did learn a ton. Uh, so that was how I got into, and I never saw myself as kind of, you know, policy-ish. I mean, I would sound off on at the Duck of Minerva, but I was not really, this was not anything like the trajectory I had in mind. I still don't think it's the trajectory I'll ever head in. Uh, but, you know, so I, I worked at the Pentagon for a year, and you come out of that, and I think, um, you know, coming from a very different pers- you know, trajectory, that getting that kind of experience does change the way you look at a lot of things. And, you yeah. know, keeping in mind that it's narrow, you get kind of one perspective from within the bureaucracy. But it did lead me to think about a bunch of things differently, including things like how U.S. hegemony actually works. Uh, a lot of my priors, I, you know, my priors were confirmed in some respects, but but altered in others. Uh, and around, and so it was a really interesting experience. Uh, and you know, I, I, I did a lot of backfill, uh, so I learned a lot about kind of what the basic things that desk officers do. Um, mm. I did do, towards the end, some analytic work. I, I did some work on Russian nuclear strategy, which was really interesting. Uh, and then by the time I finally kind of figured out what I was doing, it was time to leave, which is how it Pretty, always yeah, is. Yeah, a year is like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I came back here. And then, you know, I guess again, sort of doing policy-ish stuff was just still primarily a story about 
writing for blogs or for the monkey cage or something like that. I'd been doing, I'd already started some collaborative work with Alex Cooley because mm -hmm. he'd come to me at one point and said, you know, your theory of how empires work looks, has some sort of, and he also had worked on empires, has some legs if we look at the overall structure of the American basing and access network. Uh, so we should think about how those fit together. We eventually produced a paper on it, but we started talking about kind of broader projects. He brought me in in a foreign affairs piece on uh, when Russia invaded Syria, which I'm sad to say we got wrong. If you look at the stuff I wrote about Russia uh, circa 2014, 2015, mm. uh, I, I still stand by it. But I think what I didn't anticipate <laughs> was that we would elect somebody like Trump, that the United States would be as vulnerable as it turned out to be to, um, uh, you know, I don't want to argue that, you know, the Russians turned the election over, but we were certainly proved to be vulnerable to foreign information operations in a way that set the tone for some debates. And I think, and, and then the election of Trump, I think, has been uh, destructive to some of the advantages that I think we hold over Russia, for example, geopolitically. All right, gang, that's going to do it for part one of my interview with Dan Nexon. On the next episode, part two, it's fucking juicy. We're going to talk about Warren versus Sanders, how he got involved in Sanders' uh, 2016 presidential campaign, progressive foreign policy, how he ended up writing this seminal foreign affairs article defining progressive internationalism, uh, his new book, Exit from Hegemony, which hits store shelves soon. A lot of great shit in this episode. Stay tuned. Peace.